Well, church, it's a good day, isn't it? See if I could get through a sermon here this morning. I would like you to, if you would, uh, turn in your Bibles to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4 as we continue our study of this wonderful little love letter that the Apostle Paul wrote to uh, this beautiful church. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, you'll find that on page 987 in the Pew Bible. Um, I would encourage you to have a copy of God's Word open, as we, we like to do. Um, the reason is, is we're going to be referring back to God's Word throughout our time together. It will help you to stay engaged in this message. It will also help reaffirm to your heart that what we're considering today is not simply man's words, but happens to be the very Word of God. And it is our great honor, of course, to consider it even now as we think about 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, beginning in verse 9. Hear now the Word of God. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write you. For you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. For that is indeed what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. And to aspire to live quietly and to mind your own affairs and to work with your hands as we instructed you. So that you may live properly before outsiders and be dependent on no one. Our Father, we are thankful for your word that we now can consider and pray that you would bless us during this time as we think about this great and wonderful call to love one another, to brotherly love, and how it manifests itself in our lives. We want to be a church, I trust, Father, that abounds in love, a love that can only be explained by a commitment to Christ and receiving of his love first, and that has impacted us in such a way that we do not simply hoard the love that he pours into our hearts, but we, we, we um, are a fountain that it drains out into other people's lives. And so do a good work in our midst. Help us to hear your word, we pray, as has been shared long ago. Speak, Lord, for your servants are listening. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. It was in the early 1600s that... The famous, according to one count, the famous Archbishop James Usher was shipwrecked on, the, on a desolate part of the Irish coast. And there he, he walked um, inland a bit and found a local clergyman and asked him for help. Well, the clergyman doubted whether this disheveled and uh, destitute man was truly the Archbishop of Canterbury, the head of the church. And so to test the truthfulness of his story, he asked him this question. What, excuse me, how many commandments are there? Now let me just say as an aside, that's a, that's a pretty poor question to determine the head of the church, right? How many commandments, that sounds like something you ask a child, but here he is. How many commandments are there? Do you know how many commandments? Well, the archbishop said, indeed I do, for there are 11. The pastor answered, no. There are only ten commandments. And then he said somewhat smugly, tell me the eleventh, and I will assist you. And which Usher replied, obey the eleventh, and you most certainly will. For the Lord declared a new commandment I give unto you, that you love one another. It was soon after Christ gave that commandment that the Apostle Paul would write this letter to the church of Thessalonica. And here in chapter 4, we see that he is exhorting them onto holiness. This is really a chapter of what, what we might call Christian ethics or Christian behavior. And he begins, as we considered last time, to a call to sexual purity. And then we see today he's calling them to brotherly love. Or to maybe use the King James language, we might say to chastity, they must add charity. And this is what Paul has already taught them. In the short time he was with them. If you remember in our study of this letter, Paul maybe spent, we know he spent at least three weeks, maybe a month with this church before he was forced out of town. And, and so he had a month to teach them all that, that he knew to teach them. And you'll notice in this passage, in fact, throughout chapter 4, he's constantly reminding them of what he taught them when he was with them. So, for instance, in verse 1, he says, hey, you already received this from us. Or in verse 2, he refers to the instructions we gave you. 
In verse 6, he says, we've already told this to you. And in verse 11, he says, as we have instructed you. In other words, what I want you to understand, in the few weeks that the Apostle Paul had with this church, these young believers, he not only declared them to them the good news, but also the good life, a life of obedience and holiness. And that's what we want to consider as we work our way through 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. Now, before we even kind of dive in the text, I, I, want, I just want to address an issue uh, before we start, because we, we do, of course, know, as Christians, we are not under the law, right? We, 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 we like to say that. We like to remember that. We are no longer under the law. And yet, at the same time, we are not, therefore, free to ignore the law. We are not free to disobey the law. For instance, parents, do you accept your children based upon the, the, their obedience to your rules, Right? Is it when the room is clean and the dishes are done and the clothes are folded that you then accept them as your children? If that were the case, I would have no children. Right? <laughs> and I'm sure you would be. Right? My, in other words, my children's acceptance is not due to their obedience. It is not due to their law-keeping, and yet they still are expected to what? To obey. And so we as Christians are certainly not under the law, praise be to God, yet at the same time we are called to follow the law, the chief commandment, which I think we'd all agree, is to love. That our faith in the Lord ought to spill out into all aspects of our life as a sacrificial, self-denying, self-forgetful love. And so we see the passage before us as a call to love. But interestingly enough, that love is seen in how we go about our work. And so today, we're not just going to consider the nature of love. We won't spend much time on that. But we're going to consider, in particular, how does, how does our labor, how do our tasks, how does our work manifest the love in which God calls us? And I, I hope this will be incredibly helpful, incredibly applicable, because we spend a great deal of time at work, don't we? I mean, uh, we're, we're doing this all the time. And so to get God's perspective and understanding on, on work would mean that we would have a, a, a correct biblical understanding of a huge portion of our life. And so I trust God would bless us with that knowledge. And you see, first of all, we see that uh, they are, of course, called to love. There's a, a call to love. If you're taking notes, uh, I'm going to mention four different aspects of this call to love there under point number one. It's, first of all, you'll see in verse 9, a brotherly love. A brotherly love. For he says, does he not? Now concerning brotherly love. Now, I think it's worth pausing there because I find that an interesting term. The apostle doesn't say now concerning civic love. He doesn't say now concerning uh, uh, community love. He doesn't say now concerning spousal love. Of course, he could talk about all those things. But he says, you know what I want to talk about is this wonderful and beautiful Christian term called brotherly love. And the reason why that's important to understand is it says something about the Christian life. The Christian is just not hanging out with Jesus. It's just not me and Jesus and off we go. The Christian receives a new family. And that new family is complete with brothers and sisters and mamas and children and crazy uncles, right? I mean, it's the whole package. We get the whole deal, don't we? We get a new family, right? And the biblical word for that is what? The church. The church. See, Jesus did not establish the church so you could show up on Sunday mornings. He didn't uh, build the church so we could keep the lights on and the piano tuned or even the pastor paid. He was looking to create a community of people in which they would most chiefly identify with one another as family. A faith family in which brotherly love will be extended and received. It makes sense if we understand who God is, the very nature of God, which we affirmed already. Pastor Josh helped us in the Apostles' Creed. We affirm that God is what? Triune. That God has been, always been, a community. And within the community of the Godhead, love is given and love is received from eternity past. He then comes and creates human beings as his image bearers. And if we are like him, then we are to what? We are to live like God in community. A community where love is given, a community where love is received, a community in which love, the love of God is made known to the world. Because the world may, may look at us and they say, we don't, I don't know about their beliefs, I don't know what Christians believe. And, and, and in many ways they seem weird and out of touch, but they are the most loving people I've ever known. That is to be our family resemblance. 
It's not the color of our skin, it's our age, our political bents, it's not our, not our, our education, our wealth. What, what is it that we all share together? We are to be a loving people. That's what the church is to be known for. And, and I think we must therefore ask the question, shouldn't we? Well, is that what we're known for? Is that what Christians are known for? Is that what the church is known for? Are we known for a division? Are we known for anger? Are we known for our politics? Are we known that those are the loving people? Paul says, listen, I want to talk to you about this beautiful thing called brotherly love, which has such great power. I like the story that D.A. Carson writes when he describes his Christian friends who took in twin 18-month-old boys who had been taken from their homes. And they were going to stay with this family, they thought, for just a few nights until a more permanent foster home could be found. The first night, the little boys were crying in their cribs, as you would expect. But they were crying without making a sound. It turned out in one of their previous nine foster homes that they had been beaten for crying. An expert who, uh, once this was discovered, an expert analyzed them and concluded that these twins were hopelessly damaged emotionally and intellectually. As a result, this Christian couple decided that they're not going to send them off to another foster home. They wait till an adoptive family could be found, and they would be the long-term foster parents for them. Two years later, when another expert evaluated the boys, there was no evidence of emotional damage at all. What happened? What cured these little ones? Well, I think it is none other than love. I think it's tender, careful, self-denying, consistent Christian love. I want you to understand love perhaps is the most powerful force in this world. And not just in emotionally scarred children, but it's powerful for twisted and crippled sinners like perhaps you were one day. I remember when I was a 16-year-old boy and pulling up to the church building for the first time in my life in my own volition. I was actually going because I wanted to go. I remember flicking my cigarette out the, the, the window there in the church parking lot and walking up and, and seeing about 30 other teenagers, and I didn't know a single one of them, and I was blown away almost immediately by the love that they had among them. It floored me. It was so compelling. And it's not just true in my life. It's not also true in the Apostle Paul's life. This former, bi- formerly bigoted Jew now calls a Gentile church whom he has known for about a month, what? My brothers. Is that not extraordinary? How? What what has happened? Well, we might say he has been taught to love. For this this call to love is not just a a brotherly love, it's a God-taught love. For Paul would himself write there in verse 9, does he not? For you yourself have been taught by God to love one another. God has taught you this. Well, of course, we know that God in the Old Testament teaches us to love our neighbors, according to the book of Leviticus, Jesus commands us, as we already established, that we ought to love one another. Is that what Paul's writing about? You've been taught by God to love? I think there's something more there. I mean, he doesn't, it's not specific, so, so we can't be uh, too dogmatic on this, but I think he's referring to the role of the Holy Spirit, to, to whom he refers to in verse 8, just a verse earlier. In fact, Paul would write in the book of Romans, God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Right? The Spirit is in us. And what's that look like? That looks like God pouring his love into our hearts, just as the prophets foretold of a new covenant that is coming when God would, would write his law within them. And I will write it on their hearts, he says. Christians, because of the indwelling Holy Spirit, love. That's what we do. As one pastor explained, fish do not attend classes to learn how to swim. It is their nature that determines their action. Because a Christian has God's nature, she loves. Because God is love. This is what the Holy Spirit does in us. And I think he does it not mystically and magically. I think he does it by glorifying Christ, pointing our attention onto Jesus. Namely, chiefly I should say, his substitutionary atonement for us. Him dying in our place on the cross where God therefore demonstrates his love for us. How do we know God loves us? Well, the Bible tells us, does it not? By this he demonstrated his love for us that while we were yet sinners... Christ, what is it, church, died for us. The love of God is not manifested to you in the circumstances in which you encounter today. It is manifested to you on Calvary's cross where the perfect son of God willingly bore the wrath of God for a sinner like you and a sinner like me. And the Holy Spirit comes in our heart and he says, 
I want you to gaze on that cross again and again and again and again that you might know the love of God and that love of God might become so powerful in your life that it might flow into the lives of others. It is a brotherly love, a God-taught love. It's an expansive love, for I love what he says in there in verse 10. For that indeed is what you are doing to all the brothers throughout Macedonia. See, this God-taught love is spreading. Thessalonica being the capital of the country or the area, Macedonia, Thessalonica also being a port city, had frequent opportunities to love others as they came through town. And so he says, you're just not loving people in your church, you're loving loving people throughout this entire country. And so let us just be quickly reminded that we are to love those within this church, those who have covenanted together called Hamilton Baptist Church. But, but our loving one another here is not enough, right? We, we need to love God's church. And we are not in competition with the church down the road, like we're another 7-Eleven that's popped up in Percival, right? right? And we hope you shop in our 7-Eleven and not that 7-Eleven over there. And that is not our deal. We ought to, and we do, as you know, frequently pray for God's blessings and prosperity upon the churches over there. And when God says, you know, I'm going to bless this church over here, I'm going to bless Loudoun Valley Baptist Church, right? I'm going to bless Trinity Church of Loudoun, I'm going to bless these churches and not Hamilton Baptist Church, we ought to rejoice and praise God for it. Because we are not competing against them, we are all together loving one another as God's church. We ought to not only be praying for them, we ought to support them. And as I shared with you in the past, I praise God for the growth in which you've experienced here at Hamilton Baptist Church. And I look forward to the days in which we are positioned where we can identify dying Baptist churches locally. And we begin to use our resources and the people in which God has given us that we might revitalize these churches and have another healthy, vibrant, gospel-spreading community called the church. This is what we are to do. It's not about us. It's about God's kingdom. Right? They have this expansive love, a God-taught love, a brotherly love. Isn't this beautiful? And it seems to be, even as well as they're doing a growing love. Lastly, you'll note this call to love is a call to a growing love. For the apostle says there in verse 4, does he not? But we urge you, brothers, to do this more and more. I want you, you're doing great. Now do greater. Right? Love more. And I think about... This church that I call home and you call home, and I think, are, are we a loving church? And I think we'd all, in many ways, say, yes, we've, we've received love. We love each other. I, I talk to visitors who come all the time, and, and they tell me, man, we just felt so welcome here. And I praise God for that. But there's room for us to grow, Hamilton Baptist Church. We ought to grow more in love. As Andrew Young put it, our love can grow in breadth as it reaches out to embrace more of our fellow Christians. It may grow in depth as it enters more deeply into the hurts and joys of others. It may grow in length as it forbears more patiently and forgives more heartily. We have room to grow. We are still swimming in the shallow end of God's love. I wonder, can you, can you grow in love? Where can you grow in love? Who can you love more deeply? Who are you withholding love from? Can we learn to selflessly serve and generously sacrifice and abundantly forgive and graciously love those in our life as God has called us? In fact, he he has called us to do as he explains the ways in which we can do it, which are somewhat interesting. Because he moves now from the call to love to secondly, the ways in which we love. This, this whole paragraph really is one long sentence. And many, many commentaries I, I read really looked at verses 9 and 10, so that's about love, and then verses 11 and 12, that's about work. But no, it's, it's all one sentence strung together. And I think what Paul is telling us, he's not changing subjects now. He says, I want you to love more and more. And then he's going to go on there in verse 11, I believe it is, and give us three exhortations as to how that love can manifest in itself in our lives. So one way to love is that we could, interestingly enough, live quietly. Live quietly, for he says there in verse 11, and to aspire to live quietly. It's actually an interesting phrase. It, it, the literal rendition would, would be, make it your ambition to have no ambition. It's the same word. Aspire to live quietly. Be ambitious about having none. 
And that, that, sounds, uh, that sounds pretty modern, doesn't it? I mean, that's what we're all after, isn't it? I, I want no ambition. I, want, I just want to be obscure. I want no one to know about me. Right? No, that's not what our culture is saying. So Paul says, listen, be quiet. Now, he's not saying stop speaking. He's not saying just kind of be a wallflower. But rather he's saying, hey, you shouldn't be always stirring the pot. You shouldn't be always seeking to get intention. Which I think, as I already alluded to, I think that's interesting in light of the, the social media day in which we live, right? We always want more followers and more likes and more applause. And, and we want more people to know us. We want to be famous just to be famous and for no, no particular reason other than people know us. And we think somehow that gives value to our lives. And Paul seems to be saying, well, the Christian should be content to go unnoticed by the world as he or she is content in God's approval. And in fact, I would suggest to you, quite contrary to what you might hear from this world, that you might have greater influence through quietness than through hollering and posturing. We're told elsewhere in Scripture that we are to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. Wives of unbelieving husbands are told they might win their husbands to the Lord without a word through the beauty of a gentle and quiet spirit. So Christians can influence through a quiet dignity rather than stirring up excitement and clamoring for attention. And I think this could take place in work. I mean, we shouldn't be the ones who are always belly aching and griping, right? You know, we shouldn't be always kind of, you know, I hate this new policy or the low wages and getting together with our coworkers and all the rest. And you say, well, what are we going to talk around the coffee pot if we're not going to, you know, badmouth everything that's going on here? Right? But that's not our attitude. Right? It shouldn't, the Christian shouldn't be a griper. He shouldn't be a pot stirrer. He shouldn't be a pile in honor. He should be quiet and dignified. And by the way, that is not just the, in the workplace. It's in the church as well. In fact, you'll discover um, as he writes this, they don't seem to take him to heart. And so in 2 Thessalonians, particularly in chapter 3, he's a lot stronger about these people that are not living this quiet life. In fact, some are causing quite a stir, and their issue is the second coming of Christ. All they want to talk about is that Christ is coming, Christ is coming, Christ is coming. Of course, he is coming, but that's all they want to talk to. And they say he could come at any moment. They therefore stopped working, quit their jobs, and went around just saying Christ is coming, he's coming, he's coming, right? And they just become fanatical about one particular doctrine, and they couldn't get off it. They couldn't move beyond it. Right? You ever meet somebody like that? Right? All it is is, is, is is Reformed theology. That's all I want to talk about. All it is is premillennial dispensationalism. All it is is charismatic experiences of the Spirit. And, and they can't see past it. That's their whole deal. Every conversation you're with them, 90 seconds in, off they go, riding that hobby horse all around you. And, 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 and you think, well, can we talk about something else? Does it always have to be this? Why are you always kind of stirring the issue? Quiet down, Paul says. To the Thessalonians, quiet down. Stop stirring up the church. Don't get all worked about about this one idea. He goes on and says, secondly, that you ought to mind your own business. Interesting enough, doesn't he? There in verse 11, you see, mind your own affairs, he says. I mentioned that they quit their jobs. Many of them quit their jobs, and so they got a lot of free time on their hands, don't they? And so they use that by needlessly interjecting themselves in other people's affairs. Paul will call them in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, busybodies. And, and, and says, hey, we're, we're to mind our own affairs. Now, I think he's, we have to be careful here because he's not telling us that we live individual lives, right, independent lives. This is a passage on loving one another after all. But we must, we, we, we must not feed the stereotype that Christians are self-righteous, nosy people with nothing better to do than talk about the faults of others. Right? It's the old uh, what about him syndrome. What about him? Remember when uh, Jesus was reinstalling Peter, and, and, and he says to Peter, he says, listen, you need to know, um, you're signing up for this job, what's going to happen to you? Because there's coming a day in which people are going to grab you, and they're going to take you places you don't want to go, and they're going to do things to you that you don't want done to you. Remember what Peter's response was? Right? He looks at John, and he says, well, what about him? <laughs> what about him? Right, parents, you, you ever get that? Hey, I, I need you to take out the trash. I need you to get ready for bed. I need you to do your homework, right? The response is, well, what about her, right? What about him? Well, I want you to note Jesus' response is, what is that to you, right? You obey me. You follow me. 
So Paul's saying, hey, listen, let's stop worrying about other people's business. You obey me, mind your own affairs. And then I think wonderfully and very interestingly, he says, work diligently. Work diligently. What, there, at the end of verse 11, you, uh, you see he says, and to work with your hands as we instructed you. Okay? Um, so first he's dealing with uh, we might call noisy people, and then secondly, n- nosy people, and now finally, lazy people. And he says, listen, work with your hands. Now, those four little words, it seems pretty mundane. Okay, get to work. Okay, what, what else? It's actually extremely provocative. Right? Because he's writing this to a Greco-Roman culture that hated work. Right? Especially manual labor, working with your hands. That was degrading. That's what slaves were for. After all, what do the gods do? They just lied around all day and drank ambrosia, and that was the goal, right? We just uh, got to get to that point. Work is a curse to overcome. And that's the culture in which they are living. Of course, the culture changes, but the, the idea of work doesn't change much at all. Because you get to the medieval era, and they also looked down, in particular, at manual work. They divided work into two different um, uh, spheres. You had, of course, what you called sacred work. And then you had common work, or what they would say in the medieval age, profane work. Uh, And and you had these two kind of categories uh, of work. Sacred, we might say sacred and secular. I still hear that term. That's sacred. This is secular. A sacred, the sacred work is what? Of course, it's prayer. It's contemplation. It's uh, Bible reading, right? And, And so to them, in other words, it wasn't the gods who lied around all day and did nothing. It was the pastor's. Right? And that's what you want. I mean, that, that's, 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 you know, after all, pastors, what? You only work once a day, once one day a week, right? And so that's the goal. I want to get to that sacred work, and uh, we just lie around. Now, the common folk, they do, well, the needful work, but it's not as high. It's not as praiseworthy, right? And, and it's, it's, not, it's not sacred, it's of lower value. And so they had this very interesting view of work course, we don't live in the medieval age, do we? we? Our understanding of work is influenced by the Enlightenment. And of course, the Enlightenment would di- dismiss religious work completely. Right? Religious work isn't of any value. But even in the Enlightenment age, the day in which you live now, we still have a low view of work, and it might even be in your heart. What, why do we work? Today, seems most people, work is a way to get money. Right? That's why we work. We, 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 we work to make money so we can use the money to do what we really want, right? We, we, the phrase is what? We live for the weekend, right? And this is everywhere. You turn on the radio tomorrow morning, and what's the, oh, it's Monday. Everybody hates Monday, and the Monday blues, and isn't this the wor- worst? But, yeah, we'll stick together. We could get through this together. And Wednesday, oh, yeah, Wednesday, hump day. We're halfway there. Push on. Friday, Friday, Friday. It's 2 o'clock, 3 o'clock, 4 o'clock, 5 o'clock. Yay, it's weekend time. All right. Uh, praise God. No, they don't say that. Yeah, well, hooray. Go do what you want. Drink the beer, whatever. And then it was Monday happens. Oh, no, now we're back on Monday, right? I mean, that's our society. We don't like work at all. We only do it because it's necessary to get us to what we want. The goal, in fact, is working so you make enough money so you don't have to work. Right? And and, and this has been with us from the start of this nation. What was it? Franklin who said early to bed and early to rise uh, gives you opportunities to bless God's people. Right? (laughs) Makes one healthy, wealthy, and wise. Right? Let's go make some money. So if work is for money... What then do we think of work that pays less money? Well, it's less valuable, right? What do we think of work with your hands? Manual work, which often pays less money. Well, that's little value. What do we think of work that pays nothing? Like a housewife or a volunteer. Well, that, that has very little value at all. I mean, what, what do you housewives do all day? Just baking cookies and, and right? right? As someone famously said. I mean, that's the way our, our culture thinks of it. Work is a byproduct. It's a necessary evil to get what we want. And what we want is prestige. We want status. We want wealth. We want leisure. We want comfort. But we don't want work. Work has been linked to money. And Paul comes along and says, I want you not 
stop working, not go off and pray, not make lots of money so you could retire as soon as possible, not work so you could get to the weekend. He says, I want you to work hard. In fact, I want you to work with your hands even. It was the famous William Temple who said, creation, incarnation, resurrection, all works of God, what do they have in common? God with his hands in the dirt. Jesus was a carpenter. God dug ditches. Paul made tents. And the Bible values this work in and of itself. And it is a revolutionary idea that impacted this world, the biblical doctrine of work, or to use more theological language, we are to fulfill our vocation. Our vocation. Now, the, the world has co-opted that word vocation just to mean the thing you do um, from 9 to 5. But the Latin word vocation actually is a Christian word. It means calling or summons. And the Christians have always claimed that the work we do needs to do two things. One, it needs to fit with your gifts. And two, it needs to bless others. That's what God calls us to do. God calls you to a work that you are equipped to do and a work that helps society, whether that's changing diapers, or fixing leaking plumbing, or preaching a sermon, right, or performing a surgery, or, 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 or uh, even practicing law, right? That, that's the, if God gifted you and blesses other people, that's the work we are to give ourselves to. And I think if we understand that God calls us to work and that we are to be working people, and this is what God has laid before us and has even gifted us for in order to bless others, it might actually change our attitudes on Monday and Tuesday and so forth. It might even put, produce peace and joy in our life, just shifting our attitude as to what we're doing. And perhaps it's trite, but if it's okay, if I could share with you the, the, the story that preachers always share of the medieval uh, mason yard where the man walks through and asks the first mason, what are you doing? And he says, well, uh, I'm, I'm cutting a stone. And he comes to the second mason and he says, hey, wh- what are you doing? And he says, I'm earning my living. And he comes to the third mason and says, what are you doing? And he says, I'm building a cathedral. They're all doing the same thing, but their attitude is completely different. And I wonder if we have God's attitude towards the work before us, it would actually change our attitude towards that work. After all, Ecclesiastes 5 tells us the sleep of the working man is pleasant, whether he eats little or much. But the full stomach of the rich man does not allow him to sleep. In other words, what the Bible teaches us, is that the rewards in work are not in the wealth it provides, but in the good it does. Which is not to say, I plan to work for free, okay? Yeah. As I'll see, we need, we need to provide for ourselves. I'll show you that in a moment. But you just go back to Genesis, right? Isn't that what Butch read for us? Genesis 1, what's God doing? What God shows up, begins, and what's God doing? He's working. He's creating, right? He's building this world. And then we get the seventh day, what is he? He rests from his work. God is working, and at the pinnacle of creation, he creates humanity in his own image, and he says, okay, guys and ladies, you have work to do. And what is the work he gives us to do? Well, you see it there in Genesis 1. Fill the earth, subdue it, have dominion over all of it. In other words, our work is just like God's work in Genesis 1. We are to shape this world. We are to guide this world for its good. Just like God made order out of chaos, the world he puts us in, the world he loves, we are to make through our labors a wonderful place to live. And so we work in reliance on God's power as a quest for God's pattern of excellence in deliberate pursuit of God's glory with faithful stewardship of God's gifts as we endeavor to bless God's world. Paul says, I want you to get to work as you show forth God's image. And so there it is. So this is how you love. You lead a quiet life, mind your own business, and work hard. And you might say, well, how in the world is that an expression of love? I thought this was about love. Well, he goes on and beautifully, I think powerfully, gives us three reasons why this is a life of love. So consider thirdly and lastly reasons to love. There are three of them. First of all, he says, when you embrace this life, you actually express a love towards the world. A love towards the world, for he says there in verse 12, does he not? So that you may live properly before outsiders. 
In other words, the world is watching us. The world was watching them in Thessalonica. The world's watching us in Loudoun County that we, that, that we would reflect the truth that we believe. Right? As you know, as we already said, I think already this morning, that most people don't know what we believe. They have a, 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 a misunderstanding of what we believe, but they do understand what a transformed life looks like. I think it was John Piper, and perhaps I've shared this with you before, who said the gospel is like a beautiful woman. The gospel is like a beautiful woman, and our lives are like a necklace around her neck. So we're not the woman. We're not the gospel. Only the gospel can save. But our lives can attract or repel people from the gospel. And so if we're always belly aching, and we're always taking two-hour lunches, and we're always talking about other people's affairs, and we're always posturing ourselves for praise, what we're going to do is we're going to mar the gospel that we say we believe. And it's those who are confident, and those who are quiet, and those who are not meddlesome, and those who work hard and do what they're called to do, well, they make the gospel attractive. Or another way to put it, does your life simply give evidence to God's forgiveness, or does it go beyond that and give evidence to God's power? Is there anything in your life that shows the power of God is on you and he is transforming you to, to live in a way that is contrary to what the world holds out to us? Do you show God's power to the world by the way in which you live? You can love the world by receiving the power of God to be more like Jesus, in particular, in this case, when it comes to the labor before you. I love the story that Ravi Zacharias tells of a Yugoslavian evangelist named Jakov who boldly proclaimed Christ in Yugoslavia during the days of the communist rule. At this time, the church was uh, corrupted under the government. The government ran the church, appointed the pastors. They were all tyrants in it for the money. And and Jacob was was just an evangelist, didn't work for the church, had very difficult time talking to people about the love of Christ when the church was behaving in such a slanderous way. And one day he came upon an older man named Simmerman, and he shared the gospel. And this man wanted nothing of it because of the terror. He just talked about, how, how can I believe you when every Christian I see is full of corruption and vile and is an awful person? In fact, Simmerman said to them, they wear those elaborate coats and caps and crosses signifying a heavenly commission, but their evil designs I cannot ignore. Well, Jacob tried to defend the Lord by imagining, telling Simmerman, so imagine if someone stole your coat and then put it on and went and robbed a bank. And he said, what would you say to them if they came to your house and accused you of breaking into the bank? In other words, these men may wear the coats of Christians, but they've stolen it. It's a false identity. And so um, uh, Simmerman just cast that aside, but Jacob continued to return to the village just to befriend this man and to encourage him and to share the love of Christ with him. Years went by, and finally one day, Simran, after years, he asked Jacob, how does one become a Christian? And Jacob went on and says, listen, you become a Christian not by fixing your life. You don't become a Christian by, by doing right and avoiding wrong. You, you become a Christian by acknowledging you've already done wrong and bowing your knee to King Jesus who has come and died to, in your place. He's come and lived the life you should have lived but didn't. And he's died the death you should have died but you don't have to as he bore the wrath of God upon himself. And then three days later he rose victoriously from the dead. And that, that the Bible says that if anyone confesses with, with their mouth that Jesus is Lord and believes in their heart that God raised him from the dead, they will be saved. You see, you've got to yield your life to Christ. You've got to turn yourself over to Jesus, believe in him, and, and bow your knee before him and call him your king. Well, that day, Simeon did. He bent his knee on the soil with his head bowed. He surrendered his life to Christ. And as he rose from his feet, wiping tears from his eyes, he embraced Jacob and said, thank you for being in my life. And then he pointed to heaven and whispered in his ear, you wear his coat well. My brothers and sisters in Christ, if you claim to be Christ, you ought to wear his coat well. Because the world is watching you. They don't care what you believe until they see the life in which you live transformed by the one you say you love. And so we're to tell the world about God's love for sinners in Christ, but we, we remember we love them well by living under God's power. And so we love the world. That's one way. 
But secondly, we also, if we live this way, we express love towards the church. What does he say there at the end of verse 12? And be dependent on no one. So live this way, be dependent on no one. Of course, we, we need to help those who are in need. That's an expression of love. Right? In Ephesians 4, Paul says, I want you to work hard so that you may be able to give to those in need. Right? So we help each other when they're in need. But it is also an expression of love to work so hard, right, to work hard so that you won't be in need. Right? So you're not seeking to be a burden on, on others. Right? And, and this is what Paul is saying. I want you to work hard so you're not, you're not burdening people. Now, this is not about people who want to work but can't find work. This is about people who have work and won't do it. In fact, again, in, in 2 Thessalonians, he writes to these people and says what? If they don't work, they don't eat. Right? Get to work, people. Stop mooching off the church. You have work to do. Don't work. You love the church by working so you, won't, so you provide for yourself and not dependent upon others. In fact, it's interesting to think about work and its relationship to provision. Remember, a God, of course, in Genesis 2, or Genesis 1, Genesis 2, he creates man, and he gives man work to do, doesn't he? He says, okay, here's the work. I want you to fill the earth, subdue it, and rule over it. And then specifically, I want you to, to work in this garden, and, and I want you to tend it and care for it, doesn't he? So there's work there, okay? But then we get to chapter 3, and work seems to change. Because in chapter 3, man rebels against God, goes his own way, and God says to him, what? Cursed is the ground because of you. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. I I want you to notice the change in the nature of work that takes place between Genesis 2 and Genesis 3. Before the rebellion, God provided for all our needs. Right? The fruit of the garden, it's there. You're living in the garden. You just reach up and pluck God and eat. God is the provider. After the rebellion, what? You now provide through your own toil, through your own sweat. In other words, before sin, work was not designed to keep you alive. It wasn't designed to provide for your needs. God did that. God provided you. The work was to use the creative gifts in which God has given you to enhance his world. But after the rebellion, God gives them what they want. You want to be independent of me? You want to be self-reliant? Fine. You go provide for yourself. You, 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 you go and take care of your own needs. And out there driven from the garden of ease into the ground of toil, exchanging the orchard for thorns and drought and plowing and all the rest. That's why we struggle with work. That's why we call it labor. Not because it's bad, but because it's fallen. And it's weary and hard and utterly necessary for life. And so we need to work, he says, so you can provide for yourself. And evidently the Thessalonians, they thought, no, Jesus is coming. And so they thought, well, we're just going to start picking other people's fruit. What does that mean? We're back in the orchard, and I'm just going to start eating from your tree. And he says there in the second letter, no, no, you have to work to provide for yourself. If you're not working, you don't eat. So we love others by working hard to take care of ourselves and leaving the resources for those who are truly in need. So we, we, we love the world this way, showing the power of God in our lives. We love our, our church this way by meeting our own needs as we can. And then thirdly and lastly, we'll end with this, we love God this way. We love God this way. We don't see that in this paragraph here, but we do see it, I think, in verse 1 of chapter 4, which introduces this whole chapter to us. And we saw this last time, but consider it again in the context of this love through work. When he says there in verse 1, Finally then, brothers, we ask and urge you in the Lord Jesus, that as you receive from us how you ought to live and to please God, just as you are doing, that you do so more and more. And I continue to be struck by that little phrase there in the middle of that verse, that we have a calling to please God, to please God. You see, there's a big difference, isn't there, between appeasing God and pleasing God. You, you, most people, I think, seek to appease God. In fact, other than Christianity, this is kind of the core of all the world's religions. 
We need to appease God. We're going to do this, and that will satisfy God. I'll do this over here. That will satisfy him. I'll keep these rules. I'll do this ritual. I'll do these things, and that should make God happy with, with me. And I'm going to appease you, and maybe you'll be happy enough that when I die, I'll go into some kind of eternal life, right? So I want to appease God. Paul says here, I know, you're not out to appease God. You're out to please God. In other words, you say, I find pleasure in working this way and living this way because it brings God pleasure. I, I find joy in bringing God joy. And so what am I supposed to do? I love my brothers by, by living a quiet life, minding my own affairs, and working hard because I know that is pleasing to God, right? And so there's a huge difference. If you have not yet received the mercy of God, you might be trying to appease him. You might be trying to get God onto your good side. Sometimes I ask people, if you were to stand before God in heaven today and you ask him, why should you let me into heaven, what would you say? And I don't know how many people say, well, you should let me into heaven because I've done this and this and this and I'm a good person and all the rest. You see what that is? That's an attempt to appease God by the life we live. Right? I'm going to do this to get God on my good side. But if he has already accepted you, then you're no longer trying to appease him. You're simply working for the joy of bringing him joy. The pleasure of pleasing him. So how does, how does a child make a present for daddy? Right? Is the child there with the, with the coloring you know, crayons and the paper and saying, okay, this should appease the old man, right? 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 Okay, okay, this, listen, you know, if I, get, if I stay within the lines, that will put him in a good mood and maybe I'll get ice cream. Okay? Is that what the child's doing? Hope not. The child, I hope, is saying, I'm finding joy in the work before me because of the joy that daddy will have when he receives it. I'm working for the pleasure, working for pleasure of my father. I'm not doing this. I don't, I don't do what God wants me to do. I don't labor in the, in the tasks he's given before me. I don't work in the way he calls me because I simply want to get something from him. I want to bring him joy. And the only way to get to, I tell you, that will change your whole life if you get a hold of that. And the only way to get a hold of it is to recognize you've been saved by grace, not by work. He has already been appeased through Jesus. And I think this is beautifully captured. You'll excuse me for repeating my stories. Captured in those two Olympic runners who have, uh, we've all become acquainted with through that wonderful movie, The Chariots of Fire. Harold Abrams and Eric Little, one man Christian, the other man not, one both men working very, very hard, one man with abundant joy and the other with not. Remember what Little said to his sister? He said, Jenny, God made me fast, and when I run, I feel his pleasure. Right? So he's working according to the gifts God has given him, right? And when he does so, he feels God's pleasure. Abram's quite to the contrary, would say famously, I'm 24 and I've never known contentment. I'm forever in pursuit and I don't even know what I'm chasing. When I run, I have 10 seconds to justify my existence. So you got Abrams working very hard without any joy in order to justify himself. Little working just as hard with abundant joy because he already knows he has been justified. And then they find out, don't they, that the race is on Sunday. But Little doesn't run on Sunday, right? He doesn't, he doesn't, it's his best event, but that's not the day he runs, that's the day he rests. So what's he gonna do? Because it's the Olympics. It's every four years. You are the favored in all the world. You're in China to run is he going to run? Make an exception, of course. But he doesn't run. He doesn't run the race. Why? Because he is so secure in Christ, he doesn't need another medal around his neck. He says, I'm not running for my own glory. 
I'm not trying to establish my own identity. I'm simply doing this for God's pleasure. Abrams has to prove himself. And so he runs and he wins the gold. And even then, he's not satisfied. It's never enough. It never will be enough. My brothers and sisters in Christ, you have been accepted by God through Christ. And now he lays before you a life in which he calls you to live, a life in which you have the unimaginable honor of pleasing the one true God. May you give yourself to that. May you live in light of God's acceptance through Christ and live and work and love to bring joy to the one whom you call Savior. And when you do what he has called you to do, and you do it according to the gifts in which he has called you to bless other people, well, you will love well as you please our God. Our Father, we are thankful for the great privilege it is to be yours through Jesus. And we are thankful for the work before us. And so all of us will have things to do in the coming days. If Jesus tarries, well, we will perhaps wake up on Monday morning. Many of us rushing off to our jobs, others going to school, still others staying home with the tasks in front of them. And there before us, we will be presented an option. We could be begrudging, and our heart could be in turmoil as we live for some idol we've created, or we could recognize the great honor and privilege that it is to labor in this world for the blessing of others. And to do in such a way that loves them and pleases you. And so will you not work in our hearts and change our attitudes? Will you not make us aware of the awesome privilege it is to bring pleasure to our God as we seek to love those around us? And Father, we do love those around us. In particular, we love those who have yet to receive Christ as their Savior. Even as these two young ones came today, Anastasia and Josiah, and declared that they are yours, not because of the life they lived, not because of the righteousness in which they have done, but they are yours because they have submitted their life to a crucified Savior and a risen Lord and a soon-returning King. We pray that others, even now in the quietness of their own heart, would call upon you that they might confess that Jesus is their Lord and believe in their heart that God raised Him from the dead, that you might pour upon them the grace which would save them. Do this now for their eternal gain and for your great glory, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.